Welcome to Trashy Divorces. Welcome to Trashy Divorces. Episode two, season two. We're very happy to be you back. You can. Go your own way. Go your own way. So good. It's so good. Before we get to this. Wait, right, right. We have 60 seconds of the business. Quick stuff. Big thanks to Tana and Carolyn, our patrons of the week. Thanks so much for supporting us there. Yes, uh, and a reminder that we have merch available for you, and there's a short link for it at bit.ly slash trashy merch, all one word. T-shirts, onesies, hoodies, all all the things that you might want. Plus, we'll be getting some more things up there, too, so enjoy. And to listeners who sent us emails over the last few weeks, Stacy and I have been utterly delighted. We hope we've responded back to everybody. Please, we love getting them. Send we us do. your suggestions, your stories, whatever you need to tell us our way. We love them. They may end up on the podcast. Stacy, where would people send those? They would send them to trashydivorces at gmail.com. Yeah, they would. Yeah, they would. And they do. And it's great. Like, we really appreciate getting emails from people. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it really is. So this week. This week. We got to drag out those mustard yellow trash cans. Oh, so mustard yellow. Oh, God. Avocado green, too. Oh. That would work. That would work. Any any heinous sort of burnt sienna. Oh, I, yeah. Burnt sienna. Like a tall, way to go. a tall turtleneck in a horrible color. It's the 70s, y'all. It's the 70s. It is the trashiest stuff of the 70s with a beat you can dance to. Get ready to go your own way. So these stories have... Everything. They've got drugs. Infidelity. Disappearances. True crime. Remarriage. Divorce. Redivorce. So many drugs. There's so many drugs. <laughs> With the dawn of the 70s, it was a whole new scene, you whole guys. Whole new scene. Land of the singer-songwriter. This era of people we're going to talk about today really did epitomize this. Taylor Swift, nothing on this gang. Yeah, they put their feelings into songs and they did miles of cocaine to make sure their feelings were all top of mind. Everybody had a lot of feelings. (laughs) Stacy, Yeah? What are you talking about this week? I've got Fleetwood Mac, which is just like a roiling mass of bodies, specifically Fleetwood Mac circa 1977 and thereabouts when they were recording Rumors, which is like the epitome of trashy 70s music, like misconduct, nefariousness, and amazing creativity. It's, It's in some ways an entirely triumphant story, and in other ways it's just like, Awful. Like, why would you do that to yourselves, you poor, poor people? It was, a, it was an amazing story. <laughs> Thank you. And you have for us another, uh, oh, just like classic, classic. The first couple of 70s rock and roll. Royalty. Royalty. Carly Simon and James Taylor. I don't know if rock and roll is the we're, right thing. We've but, already okay. done this. We've done this. <laughs> hey, everybody. Thank you again for tuning in. We hope you enjoy this presentation and all of its glitter dusted yup 70s coked up strung out scarf wearing you're so vain glory you're so vain glory enjoy (laughs) hey stacy hey alicia i pulled out the lava lamp for this episode. You did. I had to remove the squeaky mouse from your dog's mouth, and now your dog's upset, so... Have you seen the lava lamp? <laughs> I'm hoping your dog gets really into the lava lamp and forgets about the squeaky mouse, and we're all cool. It's going to be awesome. We got 70s 
trashy divorces candy galore today. Yeah, and and stuff. And stuff. Not all divorces. Some is just trashy. What have you got for me? I can't even wait. My glasses are off. I'm ready. I have... Okay. It's multiple divorces, breakups, affairs, blah, 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 blah. It's Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, it is. Circa 1977. Rumors. Oh. Myths, legends. Good all them rumors. Oh my God, such a good album. Um, Okay, for starters, Fleetwood Mac began life as a blues band that formed in London in 1967. This is not the Fleetwood Mac we care about. It is hey not yet that Fleetwood Mac. Hey now, as a girl who actually does care about that particular Fleetwood Mac before the infusion of Buckingham Knicks, I'm not going to offend any listeners. Hey UK, your Fleetwood Mac is cool too. Hey, they wrote Black Magic Woman. They did. A lot of good albums. So many good albums. A different kind of band. Sure. So they were a blues band, and the initial lineup was uh, frontman Peter Green, guitar, vocals, songwriting, guitarist Jeremy Spencer, drummer Mick Fleetwood, bassist John McVie, or as we like to say, Fleetwood Mac. What could go wrong? This early band did have genuine success, had hits, had number one hits. Mm Mm-hmm. In 1968, John McVie married a blues singer and pianist named Christine Perfect from the band Chicken Shack. Yup. Christine McVie. Yup. I love that her maiden name is Perfect. It's Perfect. It's Perfect. It's Perfect. By 1970, Peter Green was in a uh, mental health decline. He had overindulged on LSD at a commune. And that may have contributed to the onset of schizophrenia, or perhaps it just made the onset of schizophrenia more apparent. But in any case, Green left the band in 1970. Christine McVie hops in to fill in on vocals, keys, songwriting. Whatever. Oh, wow. Right yep. there just from Chicken Shack. Yep. Yep, yep. Uh, also in 1970, McFleetwood married, oh, you're going to love this, uh, model Jenny Boyd. What? After a five-year on-again, off-again romance, Jenny Boyd is the younger sister of Patty, Patty Boyd, Boyd, the wife of Beatle George Harrison and later the wife of Eric Clapton. That is entirely true. Featured in a season one story of yours. Yeah, Jennifer Juniper mm-hmm. by Donovan was written about her. She, about uh, Jenny Boyd. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, although they never dated. She was apparently just, you know, muse. It's a, it's a tough role in the world. Well, it denies her agency. Anyway, whatever. Um, on tour in 1971, they're in Los Angeles, I believe. Guitarist Jeremy Spencer... Tells the band he's going to run out and grab a magazine and never comes back. What? What? The band looked for days and presumably had notified authorities, whatever. And since this is a true crime podcast, his body was eventually found under a dumpster. No, I'm kidding. He had joined a cult. Oh, my God. And he is still affiliated with them. Really? And this is not a true crime podcast. <laughs> oh, I've got true crime in mind coming up. I was I thought we were taking a surprise detour. No, Jeremy Spencer, he still records. Took off and- yeah, he it's like the family. They were the children of God at the time. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's been through a bunch of but he's he's still a performing musician and he's still part of this, you know, quasi religious subtitle for both of our stories or sometimes drugs are not a healthy life choice, but cults aren't either. Yeah. Probably the cult was a better... Anyway. Wow. Well, I, I mean, you know what? You'd you be the judge. Um, okay, there's a whole lot of lineup changes that are coming here, and I'm just going to try to zoom through them to get to the good stuff. So okay. Spencer gets replaced 
which changes the band's sound again. You know, another guitar player gets fired because he keeps having these, like, alcohol-fueled tantrums. So they have this, like, constantly shifting lineup for, like, several years, three more albums. One of the guitar players that they bring in has an affair with Jenny Boyd um, while the band's on tour. So that leads to the end of the tour, and the dude gets fired, obviously. Yikes. And at this point, things get like really things weird. Are bad. No, no, things are weird because okay, so Fleetwood Mac was named by Peter Green for Mick Fleetwood and John McVie. Well, the uh, manager of the band, Clifford Davis, says, No, no, I own that name. That's mine. Oh no. So he forms a new Fleetwood Mac Excuse and me? decides to send them on tour, I think in the States. And is like he tells those musicians that like, oh it's cool, Mick Fleetwood will be along for later dates. Like but you're the new what? you're the new Fleetwood Mac. Um, you are kidding me. No, it gets worse. So, I've never heard this story. So Fleetwood Mac's tour manager shows up to manage Fleetwood Mac's tour and is like, "Wow, you, you guys, guys are the aren't band I Fleetwood know. Mac. <gasps> this is not Fleetwood Mac. This is not the band I'm looking for." So he hides Fleetwood Mac's touring gear in an attempt to sabotage this effort. And I, this is a totally a true crime this podcast. Is a t- <laughs> Um, so I'm not sure if the tour didn't happen or if it did, but anyway, like obviously Mick Fleetwood never joined alt Fleetwood Mac on the road. <laughs> like these guys, I think didn't know they were being defrauded and there what were lawsuits on two continents. And how um, long was Clifford Davis their manager? That was the that? end of, uh, yeah. yeah. From then yeah. on, they, they self-managed, which I think means Mick Fleetwood like, I think history will show that McFleetwood was the manager of the band for the rest of time. In any case. In, Holy smokes! Yeah, right? Right? That <laughs> that time that Clifford Davis almost stole Fleetwood Mac? Yeah. <laughs> that is amazing. In 74, to get clear of this debacle and to deal with the fact that, again, like their their sound was constantly changing because of this churn. Sure. And so their popularity had kind of waned in the UK. and But they're all still really young. I mean, they're all under 30 at right. this point. So it's they're not Making over the music, hill. having fun, right. it's cool. Uh, they decide to move to California. So it's Mick Fleetwood, the McVees, and there is another one of the, the short-termers was still in the band at the time. So they... Um, That's where it's happening. That's the scene. Yeah, it's all happening. well, the short-termer bails pretty soon no, after. No. And so... <laughs> So um, Mick Fleetwood does what Mick Fleetwood does and decides to like hit the ground running, go find some new talent and just keep plowing through his Fleetwood Mac. That is what he has done since 1967 to this very day. You'll never break the chain. (laughs) Funny, funny. (laughs) Unless you are... The chain? Uh, Lindsay Buckingham. Okay. Oh. Um, all right. So at a Los Angeles recording studio, Mick was scouting for, we need a place to record. The producer he was talking to played him some songs from a record he'd recently made by a group called Buckingham Nicks. Yeah. They were a big deal. Well. They weren't. They, they weren't were, a big they deal. They were a small deal, but they did what they did well. Right. Enough and, to get noticed. And they had opened for Janis Joplin mm-hmm. and maybe Jimi Hendrix, like. They had had some, that may have been an, a previous band, but yeah, I mean, they, they were real. They were, they were really, they, they knew what they wanted to do. Hey dad, I've got your Buckingham Knicks album on 78 if you're ever looking for it. <laughs> Just an addendum. Hmm. 
1973. That album cover's hot. Okay. Uh, so they were a duet. They, the two had met in high school. Lin- mm-hmm. Lindsey Buckingham was just 16 when they started seeing each other and playing music together. Young love. Mm-hmm. Which I don't think he ever recovered from. So after leading a band called Fritz for a few years, they landed a deal with Polydor Records. In 1973, they released Buckingham Knicks, which kind of went nowhere, but also led to this intro with Mick Fleetwood. That's it. You do your best, you get noticed. It led him yeah. to the next thing. December 31st, 1974, Mick Fleetwood calls Lindsey Buckingham. I keep wanting to say Lindsey Graham, so you're going to have to correct me if I do that, <laughs> because these are very different people, and also not so much. So... Yeah, old Linz. I got, I got some feelings. Mick Fleetwood calls Lindsey Buckingham and asks him to join Fleetwood Mac. And Lindsey's into it, but was like, look, you know, me and Stevie, peas in a pod. We're a package deal. Yep. I don't go anywhere that she doesn't go, etc. So a couple nights later, they all get together. I think it was at a Mexican restaurant in L.A. Got around a table, Mick Fleetwood, John McVie, Christine McVie, Stevie Nicks, and Lindsey Buckingham. And the future of modern music was set on course was on i mean apparently they got on great so let's take stock here it is the start of 1975 fleetwood mac is comprised of christine mcvee age 31 her husband john mcvee age 29 stevie nicks age 26 her longtime romantic and creative partner lindsey buckingham 25 and mick fleetwood 27 who is also married although wife jenny boyd is obviously not in the band These people are about to start creating brand new things from scratch together, spending countless hours in a collective flow state, writing and recording songs, spending boring hours in transit between shows before huge screaming crowds, spending days and nights away from everything comfortable and normal except each other, and collectively discovering the ups and downs of massive alcohol abuse and cocaine addictions together. I wonder what's gonna happen. You know, you have every elemental zodiac sign represented except for Earth. Hmm. Oh, interesting. So nothing grounds these people at all. Just as a is my thirty second interjection. Sure, sure. Uh, Bring your astrology at me. <laughs> Stevie Nicks and Lindsay Buckingham are both air signs. Okay, floating away. Gemini, Libra, respectively. Mick Fleetwood <laughs> is a water sign. He <laughs> is Cancer. John McVie is a Sagittarius. He is the only fire in the group. Christine Perfect is a cancer just like Mick and is also a water sign. So you kind of see how some of these relationships play out based on, we can't talk about Fleetwood Mac and not talk about astrology. I don't see why not, but (laughs) (laughs) I will say John McVie is the most understated of all of them. So it's interesting to me that he is. He burns a quiet fire. A quiet fire. (laughs) See that this can be really whatever you want it to be. Nostrology. <laughs> Please continue with your story, my dear. On the plus side, a documentary I watched had Christine McVie talking about integrating Buckingham and Nix into the lineup. And she said it worked because she had no sense of competition with Stevie. Like they, they were not competitive sure. with each other, which I just found that to be a an Ill- straight in each other's crowns. Hey, well, you're yeah. good at what you do. Yeah. And good at what you do. Illuminating statement about relationships between women, yeah. sort of professionally and personally, because they can be fraught and it wasn't. So that worked. So because they gelled and weren't competing, Christine said that just magical things happened when they started writing and playing music together. Like early on, it was great. Early on was a very short span of time. (laughs) (laughs) But it was awesome. It was awesome. 
Okay, so the new band goes into the studio to record what would become the album Fleetwood Mac. This, I mean, featuring songs like Say You Love Me, Rhiannon, Landslide, Monday Morning. I mean, the list goes on. You know all of these songs. Mm-hmm. Everyone, Everyone knows all of these songs. This was a Los Angeles studio in 1975, and McFleetwood later noted that the place dispensed cocaine like it was a service. Wow. He called cocaine new and undiscovered territory, and it would become a hallmark of the fucked up interpersonal dynamics of Fleetwood Mac for years to come. Yowza. And aside from the coke making everything better, there was already tension brewing. For instance, it turns out that Lindsey Buckingham is kind of an asshole. Yeah? I was hoping you'd get around to this part of the story. Sorry, there's more to that sentence. When it came to how the others were playing their parts... (laughs) (laughs) And at one point, John McVie stops him, apparently like mid-harangue, and says, the band you're in is Fleetwood Mac. I'm the Mac, and I play bass. Good and for just, him. Like, shut him down. They got through it, though, and the album launched to modest success. But the band's formula was what it had always been. They were just going to tour constantly. And it took 15 months, but they put that album in the number one slot yeah, on the U.S. Did. charts. Fifteen months on the road to do it, though. They were tired people, and by then, like completely drug. Were they really tired? (laughs) (laughs) Think. Let's think about this. Their souls were tired, and their noses hurt. I bet it. I bet that is true. Guessing. So they took a touring break in '76. Like they were still on the the Fleetwood Mac album tour, but a break between legs. They go to Florida to try to try to relax, take a nap, write some music. Sure, you know. They, they were very, I feel like there was a lot of codependency here. I'm not sure why, but like, anyway, you'll hear later. It's very, okay. it's very strange. McFleetwood has some ideas about how stuff should work. Because <laughs> I feel like it would be normal on a touring break for everybody to like scatter to the wind. Sure. Particular, all right, so. You're not going to want to hang, you don't go on vacation with coworkers. Yeah, so let's, let's take stock here too, right? About like a year and a half after we took stock, Christine and John are now divorced. Oh, really? Mick is separated from Jenny. Stevie and Lindsay have not only broken up, but they are like aggressively fighting with each other whenever they encounter each other. Really? So Mick's like, hey guys, let's all go to Florida on break. And they do. Whoever should listen to Mick fucking Fleetwood? Clearly. Dude, that is a bad idea. Well, okay, but... Okay, I didn't know that was the state of everybody's personal condition before we're about to head into this. Yeah. I thought it disintegrated during. I think it was... I think it was slow burn disintegration. I think it... Holy smokes. Spooling out over time. Okay, talk to me. What happens? Well, okay, so they're at this house in Florida, and it was, you know, all of this, all of this... Everybody, everything is collapsing. And Lindsey Buckingham hammers out the first iteration of Fleetwood Mac's classic Go Your Own Way, which is his breakup song from Stevie Nicks. Mm. In 2013, Lindsey told Classic Rock Magazine, I was completely devastated when she took off. And yet I had to make hits for her. I had to do a lot of things for her that I really didn't want to do. And yet I did them. So on one level, I was a complete professional in rising above that 
but there was a lot of pent-up frustration and anger towards Stevie and me for many years. Oh, sing me your sad song of being a sad white boy who is a talented <sighs> guitarist who can never, like, oh. So, on the one hand, like, I, I completely... I yes, I'm sure that he was bitter and angry for a long time and the, their proximity. But you know what he could have done and ultimately did do and ultimately has done? He could have walked away from the band for a few years. You know, she could have too. Like all of all of this pity party party stuff is not not okay. working for me. No diss on his talent. He's a very talented musician. Oh, he really but really But you is. know what else he could have done before he did all of that? Not been a dick. Well, I think Dick is just who he is. I don't think he can help it. It's his personality that's the problem. <laughs> okay, Stevie... I'm the Mac in this band, man. So, Stevie Nicks responded approximately the way you'd expect a normal person to respond if someone had written, go your own way about... If their ex had written, go your own way The about original them. Taylor Swift. So she particularly took issue with a specific set of lyrics and later told Rolling Stone, I very much resented him telling the world that packing up, shacking up with different men was all I wanted to do. He knew it wasn't true. It was just an angry thing that he said. Every time those words would come on stage, I wanted to go over and kill him. He knew it. So he really pushed my buttons through that. It was like, I'll make you suffer for leaving me. And I did. Oh, she sure did. What did she write? Okay, so first, to be honest, Go Your Own Way is a fantastic song. It's, a, it's it the is name a of the episode. It's a great, great song. song. And became one of the smash hits from the Rumors album, which was still, you know, a year and change away. Absolutely. Uh, it also spawned a response song. Tell me. Penned by Stevie late in the development of the record Rumors. This is the song Silver Springs. Do you mean the song? Or the curse. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You be the judge. Check out TrashyDivorces.com to watch the video and you tell me. I'm just, I, Stevie laid it down like Marie Laveau, man. Yeah. So Stevie Ugh. loved Silver Spring. Like, loved it. It's this angry breakup anthem which ends with this badass ramp up. And you're right. It is obviously. You will never. You, you will it is sorcery. My voice will haunt you. Yep. You will never be free. It is yep. a curse and a song. Yep. Marie Laveau style, and I love oh, it. Oh, yeah. Pure sorcery. I have may cursed, I may have cursed a few of my exes with the same thing, which it's a powerful song. That's all I'm saying. Stevie Nicks is a badass. All right. So she loved it so much and understood so well what it would be once it was out in the world. That she assigned the publishing rights to her mother as a way of saying thank you for for all of her support over the years. So her mom would get the royalty checks and that was just just a sweet thing to do. Except it wasn't. Why? Because Silver Springs didn't go on rumors. Mick Fleetwood takes Stevie out into the studio parking lot, which Mm. apparently never... She knew something really bad had happened because... That never happened. Yeah, because they... I mean, they had this like weird really messed up family vibe going but anyway so she knew something really bad was up and he was like look this the song is way too long for rumors there are already too many slow songs on the record and all of us are songwriters and everybody wants roughly equal time and there's just no way we can put silver springs on the album and like they tried to work out like well what if we take this other song of yours yeah like we can't compromise uh yeah they tried to find 
some other alternative, but I assume that maybe the pe- other people in the band preferred, you know, like it just didn't happen. So Stevie, like all artists are very calm and level. She was very calm. She probably took it well. She took it. Exact, about as well as you think. About as well <laughs> as somebody who's completely in love with their own song and assign the royalties to their mother, anticipating this mega thing that they were creating. Like it's a good song. It's a good song, but good rumors curse. rumors is a good album. Like sure. Like how could that not have? Oh, she was outraged. I would have been outraged. And ultimately, honestly, years down the road. Stevie Nicks ultimately left Fleetwood Mac over Silver Springs because really? Mick Fleetwood fucked her over on this twice. I'll get to that. Actually, I'm going to kind of get to that really soon. Okay, so she was furious. She was crushed. But ultimately, like, rumors went out the way it went out. When Go Your Own Way was released as a single, and this is back in the days when it was vinyl single, so there was a B-side. Boiling rage. Silver Springs was the B-side. Oh! <gasps> No. So it put the whole discussion in one place, but... No, fuck that. That's the cameraman from The View putting together Rosie O'Donnell and Elizabeth Hasselbeck in that thing, and it was like just different TV. That's just setting... That doesn't need to go in, but that's just setting it up to be a conflict. Yeah. So, Not healthy behavior. So, like, Fleetwood, uh. Fleetwood Mac superfans from, like, back in the day had had always considered Silver Springs to be like the lost Fleetwood Mac hit. Mm. It was kind of a legendary song. So around 1990, I mean, we're jumping ahead. We're going to jump back. But around 1990, Stevie was considering doing a, a best of her solo work because sure. she, all of them really had been releasing solo work in the interim. And so she asks Mick if she can use Silver Springs for it since Fleetwood Mac hadn't in any meaningful way. And he was like, well, actually, we're coming up on the 25th anniversary of Rumors. Is that right? 90? Anyway, we're coming up on a, on a tw- 25, sure. the chain, you know, is the, a box that they released in 92. He was like, I was thinking of using it for that. So, no, you can't have it. <laughs> so, she she quit. <laughs> wow. Yeah, she quit for most of the decade. I think she went back in 97 or 98. And Silver Springs did appear on the 25th anniversary box set. I mean, she went off and had an entirely successful oh, yeah. solo career. Oh, yeah, yeah. Leaving the band did not slow her down. Not at all. Um, and she, like, because, you know, Lindsay Buckingham, uh, Christine McVie, like, they all, they all, and they all worked together on solo projects, really. Sure. And McFleetwood was, like. It is a dysfunctional It is a dysfunctional of, band. Yeah. Um, but Stevie Nicks had the most commercial success as a solo artist. For sure. You know, Christine McVie, like, developed a fear of flying, like, the touring. Like, again, oh, really? Mick Fleetwood had this, like, grueling tour thing that that's just how he preferred to be a musician in the world. Right. And so over time, like, she she left the band for many years because huh. she just didn't, that wasn't where she was in life anymore. She wanted to be with her friends and family and she didn't want to be getting on airplanes and... Get that. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, this band has really, like, formed and reformed and just it's been a bunch of different things over time but silver springs amazing song it will be on our website oh and it it did not really come back to the forefront until 1997 when they released the dance which is a concert album and film and then they they re-released rumors it's like the deluxe version of rumors and it includes silver spring and a bunch of other 
stuff as well. So, so there. So the so the song came back, it's but it took song. it took twenty years. Her mom's first royalty check, twenty years late, Ugh. was for fifty grand. <laughs> Good lord. Yeah. So more fun from the rumors recording sessions. Christine and John had, of course, divorced. And at that point, they were only communicating about the songs. So Chris- Awkward! Awkward! <laughs> Christine contributed to very interesting... I mean, she contributed more songs than this, but two very interesting choices that ended up in the final lineup. The first is Don't Stop, you know? Don't Thinking stop. about tomorrow. Thinking about tomorrow. Yeah. Yesterday's gone. Yesterday's gone. That's the one. And that was her upbeat reflection to John. Ah, uh, like we had a thing. Uh, it's gone. Don't stop thinking about Like, it was helpful. Move on with your I life, get, man. Yeah. We're cool. Everybody's good. Yeah. The second, the second interesting song okay. that she contributed uh, is the song, You Make Love and Fun. Yeah. Which is not about it's John. It's all I want to do. Who is it about? Well, oh. It was it was about Fleetwood Mac's lighting director, who was now her boyfriend. Oh, so one of Rumors' producers, uh, Ken Kalit, maybe is how that's pronounced, remembers. But then there was John and Christine's break. She would sneak her new boyfriend into the studio just as John was walking out through another door, and we were kind of ducking. When are the two chemicals going to mix? When are we going to have the explosion? Ooh. For a while during the recording, like Mick is such a crazy person. Mick decided that the best way to keep the peace was to have everybody live together in two groups. No. So Christine and Stevie. He didn't learn enough from Florida. <laughs> Christine and Stevie got a couple of apartments down like by the harbor or bay or something like down by the water. And the guys moved into like a place next so to the studio. So now we're moving into boys and girls dormitories? Yes. Jesus Christ. Yes. And they were like, they were working, they were in the studio like 15 or 16 hours a day, but it was like, they would get there like late afternoon, early evening and like have a big feast and then do cocaine for a bunch of hours. And then around two in the morning, they'd start recording. Sure. Like, yeah, lots of booze. Good times. Lots of weed, yeah. lots of coke, lots of like, and apparently, I mean, this, this dude, the interview with uh, this Ken Kalick guy is awesome because- he talks about Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham laying down backing tracks on maybe you make love and fun, but on one of the songs and they're, you know, they're both behind the glass staring directly at him. So they don't have to look at each other. Right. And every time they had to like, cause they're, they're recording on tape. This isn't audio. This Ooh. isn't um, digital. And so anytime he has to like rewind the tape, the second they're not recording anymore, they would just turn and start screaming at each other. It was a oh nightmare my. so bad times uh so yeah then they're living in this weird communal oh my I God. don't know fragmented communal all right and Nick, as bad if, ideas man oh just bad you ideas. wait we're oh not God. even there yet as if things weren't fucked up enough in fleetwood mac in late 77 mick and stevie begin an on again off again two-year-long no. affair oh and then more or less overlapped with the end of his marriage. And then he briefly remarried Jenny Boyd to help immigration to the U.S. for their kids, apparently <sighs> was the deal. Anyway, so Mick tells Lindsay, hey, by the way, Stevie and I are seeing each other. Oh, Jesus Christ. Right. 
No. And apparently no. Lindsay, fairly stone-faced, said, nice of you to tell me. I appreciate it. Like, I imagine that, that was... That is not what Lindsay said. <laughs> that is not what he thought. So they eventually broke the relationship off. And Stevie Nicks has, like, over the years, has many times... Every time this comes up, she berates herself hard for it. Because she's like, you know, I knew... I knew Jenny, better. I knew his yeah. kids. I loved them. I loved his family. And like, it was terrible. We were drugged up. We were coked out. It was stupid. Like, it's just one of the worst things I've ever done. Aww. So, you know, she's lived with that. So then. <laughs> but I mean, taking ownership for it is something. Like, we're going to talk about a lot of people in this episode. Yeah. That end up really taking ownership for some bad decision making. Yeah. In their past. To this day, I've never heard Lindsay Buckingham take ownership for yeah, his I, bad choices. I and didn't. He's always blaming someone else. Yeah, in researching this, I didn't. Um, you didn't find that either? I will say I found him to be sort of a caustic and just a squirrely enough guy that I wasn't that interested in. Yeah. I didn't put a ton of focus on him. Sure. That, honestly, I mean, Mick Fleetwood and Stevie Nicks are much more interesting people than Lindsay Buckingham. Oh. Seriously, yeah, the absolutely. Um, least. I I don't know. It's like there's a lot of people who have owned their narrative in this story, but I don't feel as much as this band has clearly had interactions together that yeah. Buckingham has ever owned his narrative. Well, okay, so they break their Stevie and Mick break their relationship off, and Mick starts dating. Stevie's best friend. What? A woman named Sarah Recor, whom he no. eventually marries. They were married for seven years, I think. Oh my God. Um, and, you know, at yeah, the, it's no big. At the it's outset, cool. this uh, caused some pain for Stevie, uh, which Mick was really surprised by. He was like, but we're done. What's the big deal? Uh, it also produced the song Sarah. I was going to, wow. Because this band. <laughs> anyway, Sarah appeared on 1979's Tusk. Yeah. Uh, and sort of, okay, so here's another another fun thing from Mirage in 1981. Included Christine McVie's song, Hold Me, which was inspired by another troubled romance because she was engaged to Beach Boy drummer Dennis Wilson. Really? And it was going terribly. They were engaged for like three years. So yeah, Hold Me is about, like, this band <laughs> is just like this engine that takes- what? heartbreak and just turns it into chart topping songs like it's amazing this is like it's hard to think of a more perfect system of taking like woundedness and making it like famous and popular (laughs) and and lucrative my (laughs) brain is overwhelmed with legitimately brand new information this is um oh yeah yeah go 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 Um, also, Holy if, uh, God, I didn't know she was engaged to Dennis Wilson. Yeah. So also the song Tusk, which I and think. And what it, year was this? Um, that was 80, 81. So I think they were engaged from 79 to 82. When? I'm, I'm, I'll look up when he died during the break. I have a different thing to research okay. now. Go ahead. Oh, okay. But yes, uh, Tusk, the song Tusk, um, gets probably its best treatment ever. In the opening episode of the TV show, The Americans. Ah, so good. It is such a cool sequence. Okay, moving on. (laughs) So this, okay, this sort of ends the official, like, marital romantic drama within the band section. But (laughs) 
the lineup over the next many decades has been all over the place with only Mick and John standing as the permanent members of the band. So Fleetwood, Mac. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Makes sense. There you go. Last Stevie, man standing. Yeah, everybody got sober. Stevie checked into Betty Ford in 86 when, Betty. when a plastic surgeon told her that her nose would disintegrate if she continued using cocaine. And she has said that she, they were all addicts, but she was the worst. And that moment scared her yeah. Yeah. straight shitless. Yeah. yeah. And actually, and she, after that though, like she quit coke, but was still on a bunch of psych meds mm-hmm. after that. And she like fell and cut her head open. And realized, like, she just hadn't had enough alcohol to, like, it was the clonopin that she was on, so. She was on so many drugs. Yeah, um, she went through a, a lengthy and painful detox from. Yeah, she had a bad therapist. Like, from what I recall, I saw an interview with her. She had a really bad therapist who had her, whatever, like, on, whatever, 10 clonopin a day with lorzepam. And she invited a friend of hers over one day and said, hey, man, will you today take the drugs I take during a day. Can 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 we do them together? Cuz I think I'm losing my mind here. If you can take the drug and he's like you have got to eat within 2 hours is flat. Like how you need help. Like, you yeah, cannot yeah. you need a new doctor. Yeah. You can't do this every day. This is not to, this how, is how to function. you out. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so John McVie apparently his his drug of choice was alcohol. A lot of it. And in 87, he had a seizure from over drinking. And so he gave up drinking at that point. Oh, wow. Okay. And has, I think, been sober since. Or I I don't know. I like, he's probably been sober from booze since. I think everybody's been sober from cocaine for a long time. Sure. I think that was just. However, fun fun (laughs) things about 70s rock stars in mixed biography. That pharma party ends up stopping. (laughs) At a certain um, at a certain point. Yeah, in mixed biography, there's a story about a time when the band was chilling with an engineer one night, and they're just like shooting the shit. Like, how much cocaine do you think McFleetwood's done in his life? And so they they did a they ran a little calculation. They did they, some maths. They did oh. some maths. They uh yeah calculating based on an eighth of an ounce a day for twenty years. Which is probably I can't even process an eighth of an ounce of cocaine. A day. I honestly don't even know what an eighth of an ounce of cocaine would look like. It's an eight ball. I know, but I don't know what that. I mean, I know what it looks like on a pool table. No, I'm kidding. I'm, I don't know what that would. Okay, so calculating based on an eighth of an ounce a day for twenty years. Jesus. The engineer determined that if you laid that much cocaine out in a line, it would be seven miles worth of cocaine. Oh. Uh, and I mean, to this day, Stevie lives with a dime-sized hole in her septum. Um, Seriously? Yeah, I guess there's no reason to get it fixed. Like I'm, sh- I'm sure at this point it's healed and doesn't hurt her or anything like that. But so, like to wrap Fleetwood Mac, I don't know, there are a few things that I want to <sighs> wrap up with. One, apparently Mick Fleetwood has lost count of the number of times he has declared bankruptcy. Oh, it's good for him. So put him in charge. Put him in charge. Yeah, like apparently- This is the guy that should be in charge. Apparently he never started thinking about tomorrow. <laughs> and um, as of- Yesterday, never went away. Never went away. <laughs> as of 2018, uh, Lindsey Buckingham pissed the band off enough that they like fired him, fired him permanently and now have- I want to say Mike Campbell of Tom Petty's old band and Neil Finn of, what is that? 
Crowded House. Crowded House. Crowded House. I love Crowded House. I don't know House. why I can't remember the name uh, of that band. They're such a good band. They're such a good band. Such a good band. And that is now the permanent lineup. So Lindsey Buckingham is listed as a former member. Really? I knew there was a little controversy. Yeah. Uh, it seems like as far as the band, the band is concerned, um, Done. he's just no longer a member. We are uh, and then and he had heart surgery in February of oh, this really? year. Yeah. Okay, so. so he's healthy. <laughs> Um, doing his own thing i mean yeah i mean i hope he's healthy obviously okay um, but yeah that's kind of the fleetwood mac story we did take a small interlude in that because our cat had some things to to take care of <laughs> uh during that period i did look up dennis wilson's death sure he died december 28th 1983 okay 83 so i wonder what did he what did he what did he die of? It's the saddest death ever. He was it drug related at all? Was it? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh. Um, no, this is kind of true crimey. He went in to search for a picture. Dennis Wilson was the guy who hooked up with Charlie Manson and brought the whole family into that circle, especially the house on Saleo Drive, when Terry Melcher and Candace Bergen lived there. I had no idea that he was engaged to Christine McVie. I wonder how much that might have traumatized her. I have a whole new thing to research now. Well done. That was an amazing story. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That was Thank amazing. You. Don't do cocaine. Don't know. Drugs are bad, kids. Don't end up with a dime-sized hole in your septum. There are ways to avoid this. We should have stopped this a long You're time ready ago. You're ready to go to break. Let's go to break. <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm Katie Segal. And I'm Kurt Sutter. And welcome to our new podcast called Pi, People, Influences, and Experiences. Yes, it's sort of the uh, get to know you at a deeper level, the who, what, when, where, and why you are rather than what it is you do. Absolutely. We're not going to talk too much about what people do. We just want to know about their families, where they come from, you know, what shapes their parenting if they have kids, what shapes their marriages if they're married. We just want to be really nosy. We want to get in there. A deep dive into nature and nurture. And we started it because there are a lot of people that we don't know that we are curious about. Right. And I have no friends, so for me, it's, you know... Try like, to get them out of the house. Listen to it on whatever you listen to. <laughs> Podcasts on? Yeah, podcasts, your, homecasts. Your, 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 your podcasting apparatus. Watch it on the YouTube. He's aging himself. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. 
Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. All right, Alicia. Stacy. So I know you've been happily at work on your story this week because you love these people. I have really, after the toxicity of last week's episode. Yeah. Yeah. This That's really true. has we, been a week to... Relatively speaking, we love everyone based on after that. Well, I mean, you're, yeah, you're not kidding about that at all. But this really has been a fun week with soundtracks and memories. Oh, my God. Yes. Again, please check out TrashyDivorces.com. You will find this episode top of the page and it'll have so much music. I think I'm going to have to make another Spotify playlist just for this mm-hmm. episode. Yeah. Okay. This week. I am bringing you the musical romance and trashy divorce of the first family Mm. of rock and roll, at least in the 70s, Carly Simon and James Taylor. I don't know if I'd say rock and roll. Yeah. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Kidding. Okay. Moving on. For my research this week, I pulled on all kinds of archival interviews. There's a great one where they're both interviewed in 73, right after they got married. Uh, So many good sources, but for a really wonderful read, I recommend Carly Simon's memoir called Boys in the Trees. Anyone who is gearing up for some beach reading and getting your summertime on, pack this book in your beach bag. It is delicious. Okay, you ready? Let's hear about Carly. Okay, yes. I'm bringing you yet another psychological portrait. You know what? I I will tell wrong. you. Okay, the psych portrait is less, but I actually know less about these people than you might realize. Really? So, okay, so this should be good. Well, I get ready. Ready. Okay. Carly Simon, born in June, June twenty fifth. She is a Cancer. She's a Water sign. Her father is a publisher. Her father is one of the co founders of Simon and Schuster. So she is Carly Simon, Simon of, of those Simons. Sh- yes. Her mother is a homemaker. Her father is sort of a dark and lonely figure. There's a lot of depression. There's a lot of Rachmaninoff on piano. There's a lot of booze. Carly grows up kind of feeling like he likes her sisters more than her. She says after two daughters, he'd been counting on a son, a male successor, to be named Carl. When I was born, he and mommy simply added a Y to the word like an accusing chromosome. Carly. What a great phrase. Yeah, right? accusing chroma she's this book was amazing a brother was born after carly so family oh, of four okay the and what simons, was the brother named carl no <laughs> the simons have an artistic affluent home uh rogers and hammerstein come to play uh <laughs> no bigs they hang out with eleanor roosevelt sure they do and I, uh, albert einstein at the vineyard every year uh, and in greenwich village sure, sure. Uh, one of the families they also hang with are the taylors from north carolina out at martha's vineyard from the early 50s on. So remember that. So Carly was molested at the age of seven. There is a guy visiting from out of town. He's 16. He tells Carly about a Swedish movie that he'd seen and people were naked and urged her to go skinny. Like it, it all is really bad. And Carly eventually tells her mom this kid gets sent away because he's staying with them in the house. Uh -uh. He gets sent away for a month. And she says the biggest secret and vanity of the Simon family was to insist that nothing was wrong when in fact so much was wrong and neither one of my parents owned up to it. Carly at this point begins to stammer 
and can't like she's a that's, stutterer. That is she's a, a very a normal. Yeah, that's a normal trauma response. And her mom says, "Just sing it." Hmm. So you hear Carly Simon in these interviews years later sing "Pass the Butter" in fifty different rhythms because that's how she was able to communicate was to sing. But it gave her this innate ear of vocal vocal syncopation and. How do you change the tone of pass the butter in a different way every time you say it at dinner? That's fascinating. And like, so I, I get that she's also saying like, you know, in my house, we ignored problems, but also that's super smart. And I'm sure her mom didn't know this, but the brain does have absolutely a different pathway yeah. for music you than it does it. for speech. And that's, that's brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Mom. It's a pretty dysfunctional family. <laughs> Mom also moves in a younger man, hmm. a 20-year-old guy for a while in the upstairs bedroom. Hmm. Like, this family has some intense dysfunction. Dad ends up getting strong-armed out of the company and ends up getting really sick in 1960. Hmm. And Carly, the first night he's sick, knocks on wood 100 times, and the next day he's a little better. So the next day she knocks on wood 500 times. Like, it is... This Just poor kid. Heartbreaking. Her father does die in 1965. Because she didn't knock on wood enough? No, she did. But it's I, mean, so, he's, I, I know. He's that's terminally what's, ill. This is what's so terrible. Like cause The relationship with her dad sort of remains unfinished and ends up giving her feelings of inadequacy that she does and will continue to struggle with throughout the arc of her life. Severe anxiety, depression, and stage fright will plague her. Music is, however, the way she finds her way through the dark periods. I get that. It's mine, too. The little bit of family money that's left sort of evaporates. Carly ends up having a nervous breakdown while visiting a boyfriend in France. She goes into psychoanalysis into sessions five days a week, which deplete the money she has. She recognizes, though, that she's clearly working through something and Dr. F is happy to take her cash until she realizes, like, maybe this isn't doing what I need it to do. In 1964, uh, 18-year-old Carly and her sister Lucy get together and begin to play under the name of the Simon Sisters. Mm. Lucy has a minor hit with a song called Winkin', Blinkin', and Nod. They play on ABC's Hoot and Nanny. Carly is also studying at Sarah Lawrence College but doing digs on the side. They kind of make a minor splash. They're not setting the world on fire, but they're getting their name known and beautiful singers. And, you know, they're traveling home from London in 1865. In 1865? I'm sorry. In 1965. Seems. Yes, they found the TARDIS. Span generations. I'm just sitting here thinking, like, if I were Carly Simon and I were going to play in a band with someone, I would try to find someone named Schuster. (laughs) Just as a muscle my dad out? Okay. You're such a dork. Carly and Lucy end up on a boat traveling home from London in 1965, and they realize they are on the same ship as Sean Connery. Ooh. Oh, in 1964. Already he, super famous as sure, James Bond. Like but a Sean young, Connery but a in young his... man. Yes, in his prime. Oh, yeah, okay. wow. Okay. So Carly writes him a really cheeky letter using the word preprandial. Before a meal. Yeah. Come. Why don't you come and have a preprandial cocktail with mm, us? Mm, an aperitif, perhaps. Right. The 
Three of them end up spending most of the trip together dining and reciting poetry, not treating Connery to a Simon sister sandwich. However, on the last <laughs> night, Lucy successfully made her move. And Carly takes that as a sign that it's probably about time to break up the act. However, 12 years later, Carly does sing the theme song for the James Bond movie, The Spy Who Loved Me. Oh, that's so funny. With Roger Moore oh. starring in the role. But she was thinking of Connery the whole time, hoping that he would hear it and remember their ocean voyage together. That's so funny. So here's my shout out for my parents because Nobody Does It Better is their song. Aw. Every time I hear it, I think about them. It makes me cry. In a good way. It just is Carly Simon and my... It... Hi, Mom and Dad. Okay. So by 1968, she is working as a secretary by day. She's singing at night. She's songwriting, working to make a breakthrough. By 1970, Carly is living on 35th Street uh, with Chris Christopherson. Uh, there is, <laughs> yeah, there is an amazing piece of recording from the Martha's Vineyard Radio, which I will put a link to that ended up out in the world on SoundCloud where Martha's Vineyard Radio has a question of the day and it's about John Prine. But Carly's the first one to call in and answer the question and also says, hey, found these tapes in my guitar case and it kind of fits with John Prine. Should I take this by? It is Carly Simon in her kitchen with Bob Dylan, Chris Christopherson and John Prine hearing for the first time ever Angel from Montgomery. Okay. Just just chilling in the kitchen, just chilling in the kitchen here an Angel from Montgomery. Huh. And it and like, Carly like ends live up, like live on Hey, on it's, guitar. It, it's a new song I wrote. Oh. What do you think? Like incredible. She is dating a lot. Chris Christopherson, Cat Stevens. Cat Stevens, here's a little thing you might want to know about him. She writes the song Anticipation in about 15 minutes. While she is waiting for Cat Stevens to come to dinner, which she has made chicken with cherries and cream sauce hmm. that is burning and he's late. So anticipation is making me late. Okay. She also succumbs to the advances of Warren Beatty. Ah, uh, is he so vain? He's the second verse of You're So Vain. And poor Carly Simon, this is her like Debbie Reynolds never not got asked about Eddie Fisher this is Carly Simon's it, Eddie Fisher. It's so true. It's Every so true. interview. She has revealed that the second verse of Your So Vain is about Warren Beatty. I have my ideas who the first and third are about, but she is in so far right now is not, she's not telling. Can I interrupt and sure. maybe we cut this? I feel like I read a thing about how Carly Simon auctioned off. Mm -hmm. She did. She auctioned okay. off the identity the, of this person. Correct. And But the setup was that she would whisper it in the ear of the high bidder, and that person was sworn to secrecy Correct. until their death. And it was some bigwig who it yeah. was like a government figure oh, who wanted it, it or like something. it was like a few hundred thousand dollars, too. Like, I don't have the exact figure, but it was kind of crazy. Yeah, like Wilbur Ross won. Like, I, I forget who it was. But yeah, anyway, so there is a person out there who knows the name. Well, she has later said, more recently, yes, the second verse is about Warren Beatty. She gets that he's kind of a Lothario, mm -hmm. but she does find him irresistible. Here's Warren Beatty's technique. Take notes. Oh, God. Okay. 
He pulls out a piece of paper with the main loves of his life and sees her name on it next to Catherine the Great and Marie Curie, right? After sex, he always calls the next day. He remembered the names of my mother, sisters, brother, grandmother, old boyfriend, streets that I lived on five years ago. With this groundbreaking memory, he seldom, if ever, got confused. So he would really, he is in that super centered make you the... Well, he'd read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Something. This is where it trips up and goes bad, though. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. One night he visits Simon after midnight on a Sunday night. I just flew in from L.A., baby, and does his, like, regular routine. The next morning, she goes to therapy. Not the same doctor that she spent her insurance on. Right, right. But starts talking about this romantic encounter last night, and the therapist looks unwell. Uh Uh-oh. And the therapist is like, you're not the first patient of the day who spent last night with Warren Beatty. No. Her appointment was at 11 o'clock. She was only the third patient of the day. Oh, my God. Yeah. (sighs) Oh, my God. Wow, what a small town New York is. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, Warren Beatty got kicked to the curb. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. So she has really, right, been through the Uh, ringer. Her sister, Joanna, her older sister, says that Carly was talking to her one day looking at James Taylor's album and sees a picture of him and she says, I'm going to marry him. A friend of hers who she started co-writing with says they're walking down the street and she sees him on the magazine cover and she says, I'm going to, I'm going to marry him. (laughs) She thinks that he is perfect for her in every way. And she talks about in a book, if there is a reason to believe in predestination, this is it. He was perfect for me. And like, she is smitten. She she knows she knows she has an idea. So in 1971, she releases the song and album, which kind of get her in the public eye. Uh, That's the way I've always heard it should be March of 71. So she is really kind of breaking through. Mm -hmm. I'm going to leave Carly there. Now we're going to talk about sweet baby James, sweet baby James. He's a Pisces, born March 12th. Two years later, he's a water sign. He grows up in North Carolina. There is darkness in his family tree as well. His father is a medical doctor, Harvard medical doctor. He's kind of a big deal, does all sorts of important medical things. But he is also a high-functioning and haunted alcoholic. Lots of darkness. James quits cello to learn how to play guitar when he gets one at 12. He's never had lessons, but he invents his own way of playing chords because he's a cello player. So if you ever see him playing an early video, it's like he finds the bass note and creates a chord around it. So all of his chords, his D, his G, his A, his E are all a little backwards Hmm. because he's learned how to play it by Uh, ear. He's never had a lesson. Yeah, and on a different instrument, yeah. I mean, his dad is a famous doctor. Alcohol ends up killing his brother All of his family is subject to incredible depression. His parents divorce in the late 60s. Three of the kids out of the family, I think there were five, end up in psych hospitals. You know what? This guy needs heroin. For sure. It's a pretty broken home. Yeah, it sounds sounds rough. So James, in the summer of 1967, is living in the Upper West Side, which at that point was pretty much a battlefield. He ends up talking with his dad 
And his dad, it's really, it's amazing to hear James Taylor tell his story. His dad realizes that he is in a rough space. And James Taylor talks about, I mean, all it takes is one bad week in the wrong place to change your life in a way that is not for the better. So his dad's like, stay there. Don't leave. Dad gets his wallet, hops in the station wagon, and 13 hours later shows up at his door to bring him home. That's good. That's good dadding. That's good dadding. For for whatever the drawbacks of this family were, like that's that's, that's pretty that's good. That's some devoted love. I'm battling my own demons, but I get that you are in a rougher spot. James ends up staying for six months, gets a little treatment, and he opts out of college. He leaves January 1st, 68, for England. Danny Korchmar, Cooch, who remains a constant friend and companion, introduces him to Peter Asher who has just signed on to do A&R for Apple Records. Which is the Beatles. Which is the Beatles. Mm, yeah, so that's a big deal. He enter, like, sings in front of Paul and George. And, you know, they end up asking Peter Asher, like, this is the guy you want? And he's like, yeah, I really think. And they're like, all right, let's do it. They lay down a lot of tracks for his album on Apple. He like He's using the studio time when they're not recording the White Album. Oh, my God. <laughs> right? Okay. Crazy. Mm-hmm. He kind of bottoms out, though. Like, he runs into some bad news. There's a, I didn't watch it for this. There's a good interview where he talks about getting screwed over with, like, what was supposed to be a record contract. He's like, I just wanted a sandwich, man. We were hungry. Like, we got screwed over. Anyway, he heads back over to the States and hits up the Laurel Canyon scene. Mm-hmm. So this is 1970-71. California. California, baby. Yeah. So Laurel Canyon, at this time, that is Joni Mitchell, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Jackson Brown, Carol King, like that whole set was a big deal. James and Joni start dating. She says they were together about six months. He says they were together a year. She later says he was broody and moody. He was incapable of a relationship. Which sounds about right. Already, right. So he's hanging out in the California scene He is making Sweet Baby James and Mudslide Slim. She's making Ladies of the Canyon in blue. Wow. Yeah, right? (laughs) For him, she writes the song Blue and All I Want. For him, he writes You Can Close Your Eyes. It's all very sad. He is hanging in the California scene. Carol King gives him the credit for pulling her out of her cat-like shell and giving her the confidence to make a new career for herself. Cause she has been a songwriter with her husband, Jerry Geffen. They divorce. Right. And she comes out and she's songwriting, but she'd never given a thought to performing until James Taylor's like, yeah, I think you can like, let's talk about this. Like they've always like, been very complimentary. What year is this? Uh, early 70s, 71, 72. But in 1972, she released Tapestry, where he did part of the backing in rarefied world. Sure. The scene is really happening. His friends, even through the decades of all the ups and downs he goes through, really do stay intensely loyal to him. Okay. That's what James is up to. We know what Carly's up to. Okay. Our fated lovers finally meet. We're okay. We're up to the same date and and time. Okay. The timelines are going to intersect again. I mean, they have intersected. Don't cross the streams. Okay. (laughs) The the streams are about to cross. (laughs) Our fated lovers finally meet on April 6th, 1971 at the Troubadour. 
where yes. Carly Simon is opening for Cat Stevens. Hate Ashbury, San Francisco, L.A. The Troubadour. Damn it! It's okay. You know what? So close. I'm a space alien. You are. I my just very arrived. Alien. Tell me more things. Joni Mitchell and James Taylor. <laughs> Like all the people in the hot 1971, th- Cat Stevens, dude, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. sizzle. He is on fire. She has come out with that's the way I've heard it should be an anticipation. She's blowing up. So, of course, the dressing rooms behind the scenes in the scene are a big deal. Carly vividly describes meeting him in her dressing room. April of 71. Wow. He was barefoot, long-legged, long-footed, and his knees were bent. He wore dark red loose wide whale corduroys and a long-sleeved Henley with one button open, his right hand clutching a self-rolled cigarette. His hair, simultaneously shiny and disheveled, (laughs) fell evenly on both sides of his head, and he wore a scruffy, understated mustache, the kind so fashionable back in the early 1970s. He seemed both kempt and unkempt. Even sprawled out on the floor, everything about him communicated that he was, in fact, the center of something. The core of an apple, the center of a note. Huh. Like, she, her, uh, mm-hmm. um, when they finally get together, it all falls into place. He moves in with her immediately. They click in every way. They share the same musical language. Uh, I forget if it's the sharp or the flat of the note, but she thinks of him as a C and her as an F and how they complement each other. They have been going to the same beach. They share, like they harmonize. They, her talk of their love and their lovemaking is just beautiful and tender. And it is water and water, water and water. And they, I mean, Cancer and Pisces are a great mix. There is every reason in the world This should have been everything. Swimming around together. November of 1972, they marry. And they really do epitomize so much about the 70s. Their careers are blowing up. They ride out the 70s. Two kids, Sally and Ben, they live in the vineyard when they're not on the road. It is high times. And eventually, the marriage is going to dissolve because of three big factors. Oh. Dueling careers. Okay. Battling egos. Yeah. And so much heroin. Yeah, I feel like the first two could be managed. I mean, that's it. Everything about them is faded in the stars. And there was another episode we had where, like, everything about this should have worked out. And then drugs or addiction, like, just takes you in another direction. Yeah. Taylor ends up wanting her to watch him shoot up, which, if you're a parent of two young kids i'm sure you feel great about well I, I can't have you in this habit at the same time he says i've got to get rid of this maybe if you see me do it it'll take away the cat and mouse game no no her account of their marriage is a little bit darker than his sort of polished up image but i'm going to talk well, about I mean, the she was actually two. she was actually there for it i mean that's yeah right? like well he's you know, he's chasing the fucking dragon, man. Yeah, yeah. So he is unapproachable. He's distant. He is fighting an invisible monster that nobody else can see. And how long yeah. do you put up with that? And my guess is that his use got worse over the years. His use right? got like, worse. It was probably Yeah. It was probably 
unpleasant for her early on and by the end of things it was probably it, it was just unmanageable would be my guess in 76 he let her know that uh he had to get checked out for clap no yeah okay so he was also cheating and he was well he ended up with kind of a flop house mistress which is um, hold on in 1977 she writes you belong to me and i think it sums like Tell her you're fool. You're mine. I've always, I've always been your girl. You see them play out this songwriting manifesto about their feelings for each other. Which did they ever consider joining Fleetwood Mac? Because <laughs> they would have been perfect. That's like right on time. She's finally like, you need to come home. You, this is we're done. You need to get back to the house. Stay at home. Right. You don't need to be on tour. And he comes home to write. Dad loves his work, that album. And he writes Her Town 2 with J.D. Souther, which ah, is Her Town 2 is just the saddest divorce song ever, where he says he writes it about Bet- Betsy Asher, who's getting a divorce from Peter, but I absolutely disagree. <laughs> they separate and reconcile a lot. They end up separating in 1981. The divorce is finalized in 1983. Ben Taylor is seven when this happens, and he recalls as a kid he never prayed for his parents to reunite. Oh, you know how most yeah. divorced kids are like, I hope mom and dad get back together. Ben says, Nobody ever prayed for that. That wow. was not that is such a wow. Like, even the kids knew they were better off. Okay, so you ready for the ironing, complete tragedy of this whole story? Yeah, he gets clean months after the divorce <laughs> and stays sober. And he's been oh. clean since. Oh, that is. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to talk. I'm going to pause on that. Carly is swept up in the sadness and the devastation. I mean, this is you belong to me. Yeah. She is really adrift, kind of spiraling down the deep end. She plans a tour and her stage fright increases. The tour is canceled. She spends the next few years really working some stuff out in 1986. She does the theme song for Heartburn, Coming Around Again. Oh, Nora Ephron. Nora Ephron. There you go. We see her soon. In 1987, she remarries poet and writer James Hart. They did stay married for about 20 years. They divorced in 2007. In 1988, her music really came crashing back with Let the River Run for Working Girl, which earned her a Grammy and an Oscar. Sure. In 1994, her mom died. In 1997, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. She went through eight months of chemo. Like, there is nothing phony about this lady. She's authored children's books. She's a badass, and I love her, and she is authentic in every piece of her being. She's very honest about her mental health struggles. She was asked in an interview, like, yeah, are you on medication? She's like, I am until I think I don't need it, and then I go off of it for a while, and then I get back on it again because it turns out. I need it. Been there, yeah. Like, she's so authentic, and she's <laughs> yeah. just, there's just nothing phony about her, which, mm-hmm. my favorite kind of people. James, upon retrospect, now that he's sort of moved on to a different stage, calls their marriage a criminal waste of time. He says he was in no way fit to be a husband or a father. Nobody has any business in their 20s getting married. You're just too young. Sally's 10 and Ben's 7 when he gets sober. He gets sober in the mid-80s, and he finally gets serious about it. He spent 18 years on the juice. This is not going to be an easy habit right. to overcome. Right. But 
the addict wants to quit. <laughs> he talks about this time later and uh, you can just, you can see it in his face. He has so much remorse and shame. You can tell that he has clearly done the work on himself and to, and he owns it. Then he's like, you know, it's your parent is involved. Like for the kids, your parent isn't involved with an invisible monster. Yeah. It is impossible to understand for children. I was it gonna, is difficult for a spouse. It is impossible for children. Yeah. Was he able to repair pretty much his relationship with his kids? He, d- yeah. Okay. They've, I mean, they all sing and contribute together. Oh, cool. Yes. I well, think good that for it him. is, I mean, is I'm sure happy that took... and functional and wonderful yeah. as it can be. I think having a sober dad probably is going to make a difference yeah. now that he's not. Right. I mean, he, at 35, he got sober. He's like, I want another. I have another chapter to write and I have really fucked up the last one. Yeah. And I think he owns it, at least in interviews and in his persona. He really right. does accept. Yeah. This was all me. And I ruined the I, I ruined a great thing. Yeah. He does remarry in 2001. His twin boys are actually having their birthday today, believe it or not. All right. So happy, like, birthday teenagers, 17, 18-year-old gentlemen. You should be really proud of your dad. He's had quite a life. The very favorite thing that I picked up from this, James Taylor and one of his things, and it's so fitting, 90% of show business is how you look when you're nervous. And I've... It's a yeah, great thing. That's, that's got to be true, yeah. Carly Simon was inducted in the Rock and Roll Songwriter Hall of Fame in 1994. She's also in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So is he. James did not get inducted into the Songwriter Hall of Fame until 2000. And, apropos to nothing, here's your true crime trivia fact Uh-oh. for me. Uh-oh. Who did he kill? No, the Songwriter Hall of Fame mm-hmm. was founded by Johnny Mercer. Another amazing songwriter and coastal boy from Savannah, Georgia, not that far away from us. Right. We have him to thank for the songs like Moon River, One for My Baby, and everyone's favorite problematic holiday hit. No. Baby, it's cold outside. Oh, no. Okay. And I can't not talk about the true crime connection here. I would be remiss if I did not as a true crime gal. The Mercer House in Savannah is the one immortalized in Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil where Jim Williams lived when he killed his lover. Ba-da-ba. That's a trashy divorce. James Taylor and Carly Simon. Yeah, that's a life lived trashily there for a few decades. But, I mean, in comparison, they own it. No, completely. uh, They they both have moved on to that stage where they're owning it different than stupid Lindsay Buckingham. Still blaming everybody else for yeah. the problem. You know what? I don't think I gave a trash can rating to Fleetwood Mac, mm. which is which is a five. That was just a train wreck. They are the theme band yeah. of trashy divorces, yeah. for sure. There's just no, yeah, there's, I mean, yeah, nobody got their head chopped off, but I mean, good Lord, that, come on, people. For sure. What, how many trash cans should I give to Carly and James? I don't know. Not five. No. Definitely not five. This is just like, they were... True so love it's human, and, human and failings. Human failings yeah. and well, he got the clap. Two and a half. Okay, you know what? Half for the clap. Half for the flop house floozy or whatever. No, half for the flop half house floozy. Half for the clap and half for the how about I just shoot up in front of you? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So three, three and a half. Is that three and a half? No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go two and a half. I'm gonna oh, go two. Oh, and oh, okay, like okay. Baseline level, you got a divorce. I, the maths work. 
It's no seven head. miles of cocaine. Well, <laughs> that he, was fun. He might have gone for he might have he might have gone for some of that. He done a lap of it anyway. I feel like I just want to go listen it's to like music. A cocaine now. relay race. Oh jeez. I don't feel anywhere near as skeevy as last week. That was fun. Yeah, no, this is that was awesome. Way better than last week. Hey, y'all! Thanks everybody for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. Absolutely, and we hope that you will keep it trashy. Always keep it trashy. It Not will. as trashy as Fleetwood Mac, yo. Oh boy, <laughs> but do listen to their music. My God, I mean, it's such good music. So good. Yeah. Until next week. Until next week. Keep it trashy, y'all. Bye, y'all. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at CarbonMade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again, everybody, for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.